Hello, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. This is your ASMR host, Jackson. We were talking about it before we started recording, and we both don't get ASMR, so if this works for you, let us know. Maybe we'll understand each other better somehow. No. <laughs> no? Okay, fine. Um, and I'm your co-host, Jackson. I'm also editing this week. Oh, dear. <laughs> and we're watching School Ties and Class. And this will be the last episode of round one of our prep school bracket. It is surprising how how much these films have in common when it comes to their setup. I'm not sure that's all that fair. I feel like most prep school movies, or at least of the eight we've watched, are basically a newcomer arrives at the prep school and grows as a person. Like, yeah, that's, that's most of them. Yeah, but it's two people who are transferring in during their senior year and trying to get into Harvard. That's true. And are fish out of water. Yeah, I forgot about the whole senior year thing because the guy from his class looks so small, and Brendan Fraser looks like he's forty-seven. <laughs> he is twenty-four, playing an eighteen-year-old. Yeah, we've established. I do love Riverdale. Like, I'm not gonna cashate at older actors playing younger, but you have like baby Matt Damon and baby Ben Affleck, and then normal Brendan Fraser. <laughs> There's only two years apart. I know, right? It's wild. <laughs> but yeah, most of that cast is above the age of 18 so that they can just freely show their butts. That's true. Before we get further into these two films, uh, we do have some content warnings to provide. Yep. For class, we have content warning for suicide. It is mostly played for laughs, so use that information how you will. And then for school ties, we have anti-Semitism, some slurs, as well as a swastika. And a character dealing with a severe mental health crisis, which... While handled very well, is also very hashtag too real. Oh, uh, also for class, we have emotional abuse. Yeah. Yeah, I was not expecting both of these films to have significant trigger warnings. <laughs> yeah. Admittedly, class is a teenage rom-com, and it has far less trigger warnings than you'd expect a, a teenage rom-com to have. Speaking of which, let's go ahead and get into class. Yeah. Our story begins with Jonathan Ogner transfers to a prestigious prep school in order to improve his chances of getting into Harvard. His first day is more than he bargained for, however, when not only does he get laughed at for showing up in a school uniform, they only wear them on duty days, but his new dorm mate tricks him into wearing women's lingerie and locking him outside. Jonathan then turns the tables and fakes his suicide to get back at Skip. After they're both called into the dean's office, they agree to a truce and become fast friends. Skip then decides that it is his duty to get Jonathan laid. However, all of his plans end disastrously due to Jonathan's clumsiness, culminating with Jonathan being banned from the dance with their all-girl sister school. Skip, refusing to give up, plans a weekend trip for Jonathan to Chicago. Jonathan, pretending to be a PhD student, eventually makes a connection with an older woman named Ellen, and the two spend the weekend together and plan a subsequent rendezvous. Jonathan eventually catches feelings and says he loves her. This, and then discovering Jonathan's lie, prods Ellen to end the relationship. Jonathan is heartbroken for a few weeks and Skip decides to invite him home for Christmas break. However, when they get there, Jonathan finds out Ellen is Skip's mother, to their mutual shock and shame. They manage to hide their history during this day, but Ellen's awful marriage pushes her to reach out again. Ellen continually calls until Jonathan agrees to meet. He attempts to get her to stop calling, but they end up sleeping together again. But this time, Skip walks in on them. The boys grow distant after the weekend until other stressors push them to blows. After a long, multi-location fistfight, they make up and remain friends. This movie is functionally not that dissimilar to Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice. This isn't even the one with Ben Affleck in it. Explain yourself. Two men from different walks of life wind up dealing with some of the same problems. They find out that 
they both share a very strong connection with someone's mother. That mother winds up being a major influencer of their fights, and then eventually they get back together and decide to be friends. And also, Jesse Eisenberg is there. <laughs> a, that's definitely not the case. <laughs> B, neither one of them dies. <laughs> I don't really think Batman and Superman become friends, because Superman just dies at the end of that film. Well, if you've seen Justice League, they're friends now, I guess. They decide to not talk about that whole thing. Why would I watch Justice League ever after having watching Dawn of Justice? Uh, for the bit where Ezra Miller talks about competitive ice dancing. Silica-based quartz sand fabric, abrasion resistant, heat resistant. Uh, yeah, I do competitive ice dancing. It's what they use on the space shuttle to prevent it from burning up on re-entry. I do very competitive ice dancing. <laughs> anyway, I think Klaus is a very good example of my favorite white card from Cards Against Humanity, which is the thin veneer of narrative causality that underlies porn. <laughs> there is a truly sensational bit of slapstick where Jonathan tries to just accept a plate of tea being, being handed to him at a fancy party and manages to break a table, throw a pie on someone's face, and rip someone's shirt off. And she sort of stands there like, Hello, I have a nipple. Behold the wine dark. <laughs> Something for the dads, I believe it was called. <laughs> While the sex scenes aren't like needlessly graphic, they they do go on longer than strictly necessary for the plot. I wound up getting up to like go make tea. They feel like padding. They're, like they're just kind of trying to stretch to that ninety minutes any way they can. This movie has about sixty minutes of plot spread out over ninety minutes, and then there's like about ten minutes of plot after the movie happens that we don't get to see that I would have liked to. Yeah. The movie ends remarkably abruptly. Yeah. At no point does Ben Affleck give a painting to Wonder Woman. We are getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. We should talk about some of the rest of the cast here. Yeah. Uh, we got Rob Lowe, who is doing the most. Rob Lowe plays Skip. Here's a hundred bucks. Forget it. Jonathan, until you get laid, none of us are safe. Specifically, Squire Franklin Burroughs IV. If you've seen the original 80s movie of Teen Wolf, he's functionally Styles. Yeah. Like, uh, Styles if he was trying to get into Harvard. Also, if you've ever seen Rob Lowe in the television show The Grinder, he is slightly less over the top than he is there. There's a very good bit where we smash cut from a tense dramatic scene between Jonathan and Ellen to Rob Lowe eating his calculus textbook because he doesn't get it. <laughs> I get it! I don't get it! I don't want to get it! I hate it! <laughs> Honestly, the humor and physical comedy in this film is like really on point. It reminds me a lot of Chris Farley in things like Tommy Boy or Black Sheep. Not quite to that extent, but really close. It is not always easy to make those scenes work, so I give the director props for that. Yeah, the characters are not afraid to just throw themselves at furniture or whatnot, or to just tumble out of windows. Oh, we also forgot to mention uh, Baby John Cusack is in this movie. Yeah, he's in there. I wish he got, had more to do. There are a few scenes that he, he does really well in, like when he uh, has to hide the cigarette. <laughs> He's an RA, he lights up a cigarette, and then the administrator he's talking to comes back, he uh, shoves it in his mouth, manages to get through the conversation with only smiles and nods, pulls it back out, and then it's still lit. <laughs> yeah, he like palms the cigarette with his tongue. It is fantastic. Mm -hmm. John Cusack's only 17 here. 
Movies today would not let a 17-year-old be in the same room as a lit cigarette. <laughs> this film kind of takes place in a fun dimension of pranks that I feel like most movies don't take place in, but like this is very Looney Tunesy in a lot of ways. That kind of just fits the trend for movies of this time. This is very much in line with things like Porky's or Animal House. Mm. Um, it's not nearly as raunchy as those are, but I actually appreciate that because I think it's smarter and more well-executed because of it. Yeah, it is somewhere between... Animal House and Harold and Maude. Mm -hmm. You don't know Harold much. Yeah, so. <laughs> it's like I, I'm more familiar with Harold and Kumar. Oh, sure. Uh, Harold and Maude is about a early twenty-something son of a rich family who falls in love with a seventy-nine-year-old uh, Holocaust survivor. Huh. It's a comedy. Okay. <laughs> I know, right? Unfortunately, like the core premise, nerdy boy sleeps with his roommate's mom, isn't played for laugh. Like it has to be serious on that one bit when i was doing research for this film initially like I, I watched the trailer and like they play it up like oh these wacky hijinks like trying to hide the fact that <laughs> you're sleeping with your roommate's mom but that's never really a thing the whole thing with jonathan and ellen is a fling they have like two or three weekends in chicago and then there is a trip to new york city because <laughs> Uh, Jonathan's trying really hard not to get her to come visit him at Northwestern, <laughs> where he said he was a PhD student. So it's like, oh, I have a seminar in New York. Oh, cool. I'll come along. We'll make a whole thing of it. <laughs> they go through with that, and things fall apart there when she finds his wallet and realizes, oh, he goes to the same school as my son. <laughs> yep. And then, like, the, the third act is kind of, like, this fairly serious drama where Jonathan is trying to get Rob Lowe to, like, not be mad at him. And Rob Lowe is, like, dealing with all these complicated emotions but also not being able to really talk about it because of how awful his dad is. And it's like, I didn't want to, like, actually explore the emotional ramifications of this. I wanted it to be, like, a French bedroom farce. Come on. Yeah, w while they're visiting for Christmas, we get a insight into uh, Skip's dad. And he is incredibly emotionally abusive. Uh, to Ellen, and it makes complete sense why the affair happened, and it's really awful. And Skip opens up to Jonathan about like everything that's going on. Do you ever wonder if your parents still do it? Well, actually, I think uh, my parents have a pretty normal relationship. He tells her exactly what to do, and she ignores him. This is really like dark, introspective scene that I was not expecting. Right. And then break ends, and then the film doesn't really know where to go from there. It introduces this new investigation at the school, and so the boys try and figure out, okay, what exactly is this dude investigating? So they break into where he's staying, and they think that he's a DEA agent, and so they get rid of all of their drugs. Giving us a truly hilarious scene where they're flushing increasingly difficult to flush things down a toilet from... Just drugs, two pills, to an entire pot plant. <laughs> it's very good. Then a few days later, it's announced that he's investigating uh, accusations of cheating on the SATs. <laughs> and so everyone gets really, really pissed at John Cusack's character. No, it wasn't John Cusack. It's oh, Alan Ruck's character uh, for the, he was a narc. Alan Ruck, most people will probably recognize him as Cameron from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah, so there's that... There's the whole Ellen trying to get back with, as the SAT investigation goes on, Rob Lowe's character eventually gets called in. And earlier in the film, Jonathan had admitted to Skip that he cheated on the SAT. 
And so there's this tension of he's really mad at Jonathan. Is he going to like rat him out and ruin his chances of getting into Harvard? Uh, that doesn't happen. And Jonathan tries to like thank him for it. And then they fight. Mm-hmm. And then the movie ends. <laughs> this movie should have been three acts. Act one is all the school. Act two is mostly just in Chicago with uh, the mom. And then act three is just all at their house. Like we should not have left the house once we learned the thing. All of that needed to come out there for this to work. Like, I love you, baby John Cusack, but you're, you're not necessary for this plot. Yeah. Another thing that could have worked is if they introduced the investigation earlier into the plot to pad out some scenes earlier in the film Mm -hmm. and we reduced like unnecessary stuff later. Um, Like there's this poker scene that goes on for way too long. Yeah, I guess it was comedy TM, but... Like some of it was, but it just like we linger there and it's... It's just not good. Oh, we've also completely forgot to mention that after Skip finds out about his mom and Jonathan, she checks herself into a psychiatric facility. Yeah. Which I think is where she is at the end of the film, as far as I remember. I don't think she, like, leaves at any point. No, we we don't get any more information. I mean, mean, hopefully she's fine later. But again, that's not, like, wacky hijinks. A, it's this huge dangling plot thread. We've come to care about Ellen. You've shown us how awful her life is. Mm Mm-hmm. And you don't give us any sort of catharsis. Right. And while I do like a lot of the wacky hijinks, there are some bits that are heartfelt that I really do like. There, like there's a bit where Jonathan wakes up before Ellen does, so he sneaks downstairs and just picks a bunch of flowers. And she wakes up with just flowers all around her bed. And it's really sweet. That was a really good bit. I think like I want like that kind of sappy sincerity, but not the like grimdark introspection parts. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, there are just a lot of, like, really good, very fun, witty one-liners, like Jonathan looking at this huge house that Rob Lowe comes from and saying, Welcome to Toad Hall. I've never seen such a vulgar display of wealth in my entire life. How do I get one? Uh, There are also, like, some neat things specifically for me. So the glass elevators where Jonathan and Ellen have their first sexual encounter those are the glass elevators at Water Tower Place in Chicago. Uh, I've been in those. Hopefully they've been clean since then. Uh, I would hope so. <laughs> because I was in them in like 2003. <laughs> so 20 years. <laughs> also, I feel like I'd be remiss to not talk about the very strong homoerotic undertones in this. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I know that my approach to everything is, what if you make it gayer? But... I legitimately think that if they wanted to add more plot to this, instead of having the inspector detector guy show up, we should have had Rob Lowe has a crush on Jonathan, and Jonathan trying to tell him about his mom is a fumbled conversation, and now they think they're dating, and now Rob Lowe thinks they're dating. Just that could have created more fun and conflict that would have been interesting to see play out. Indeed, it's really unfortunate because like, this film does so many good. things things and then things just completely fall apart after Christmas break. I really think they had the concept for how it was going to start and then they didn't really know where to go from there and then they're like well we're gonna start filming right now. (laughs) Yeah it it really feels like the script was only half finished when they started filming. Mm -hmm. Or that there are some changes halfway through or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, It could also be that like maybe the actress playing Ellen had to like bow out for something and that could be why the last bit of the film is like that. I'm gonna check how fast. Looking at her like filmography, she doesn't have a whole lot going on around the time. There's class in 83 and then she has two projects in 84. It looks like a lot of her scenes were cut, so mm. I'm not sure what's happening with that. I know, I'm wondering if they were 
going for something a little more serious with a comedic t- if they were going for more of a dramedy and then it wasn't quite working because they tried to retool it as just a comedy. Yeah, and just then, a teen branch com. Yeah. Yeah, because I've also heard like comparisons to like this and The Graduate, which is a little bit more of a dramedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. A lot of horny moms in uh, teen movies. What's up with Mrs. that? Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. <laughs> Aren't you? Yeah, like there was just kind of this string of like movies about cougars. Anyway, the actor playing Jonathan does a pretty good job. Like, he has a bit where he is pretending to cry uh, as part of his prank, and I just legitimately believed him. Mm-hmm. Very strong tears. Although, him fumbling after he says, I love you to Ellen, and then trying to walk that back is just <laughs> so awkward. You know, Ellen, when I said I loved you, I didn't mean for you to get the impression that I, I actually love you. It's a cliche one falls back on in this situation. Oh, sweetie, sweetie. While this movie has a lot that I like about it, I kind of wish it would get a remake. It'd be really fun to see it redone in a modern context with maybe like another work of the ending. Also, I feel like Finn Wolfhard is going to be ready to play Rob Lowe's character in about three years. Oh, I would think that Finn Wolfhard would be better Jonathan. Here's what we need. We need Finn Wolfhard playing both characters, but they're not related, like in The Parent Trap. Except they were related. Not at first. That's not how that works. <laughs> we didn't find out till later. Therefore, they weren't related at first. Speaking of complicated family drama, let's talk about School Ties. Uh, do you want to give us a summary? Sure. So, School Ties, 1992 movie starring Brendan Fraser. Uh, on his last day in Pittsburgh before leaving for a prestigious bo- uh, boarding school on a football scholarship, David Green gets into a fist fight over some anti-Semitic comments thrown his way. At school, he downplays and hides his Jewishness. After his success in the field, he is well-liked by all but a rival for the quarterback, Charlie. Over the next year, the boys bond through love, loss, pranks, and the stressors of private school and the expectations that come with it. But when Charlie, angry feeling that David has taken everything that was rightfully his, finds out David is Jewish, he outs him, immediately making him into a pariah, subject to hate speech and a swastika over his bed. All this comes to a head when Charlie cheats on an exam, and Otis is found with a teacher, who declares that if the cheater isn't turned in, he'll flunk them all. David, who saw Charlie cheating, urges him to do the right thing and turn himself in, but Charlie points the finger at David instead. Then, the rest of the movie is just 12 angry men, but with prep school boys, and it's really exciting and interesting. Eventually, a narrow vote puts the blame on David, but then a witness comes forward and Charlie is expelled after all. It's a fear of victory. The movie makes it clear that the road ahead of David is still very long. I'm going to preface this by saying that neither of us are Jewish, so our ability to analyze this film is... Limited. Yeah, inherently limited. I was able to find some thoughts on it, but given that it's a movie from 1992 that isn't super well-remembered, it's not super easy to find. Generally, the stuff I found by Jewish commentators have a positive reaction to it, but I can hardly say it as a consensus or anything. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. It's dealing with a lot of issues of Jewish identity and anti-Semitism, and I was worried that it would not stick the landing, but it generally pretty does. Yeah, I am honestly incredibly impressed with the just understanding of microaggressions and systemic oppression that this film has, especially for 92. Yeah, and it doesn't pull its punches and it doesn't have a, like, conclusive, yay, now anti-Semitism is fixed kind of ending. Yeah, like we saw in Chariots of Fire last year. Right. This is honestly a much better version of Chariots of Fire. Honestly, it's also kind of just a better version of Finding Forrester in a lot of ways. 
Yes. There's not that mentor figure that we get in Finding Forrester. David needs a mentor and a hug. Yeah, I was surprised that we didn't get more of the coach. This film doesn't quite work as a sports movie. Like, it's in there, but it would not have made it onto our sports bracket, I don't think. And I'm fine with that. I'm fine with one or two football games, and that's all we need. A lot more of the attention is focused on David navigating this waspy, waspy world. Right. The film only shows a lot of empathy towards these waspy characters. Like, it digs into the psychology of being a generational prep school kid who has all these expectations set on him and what that's like. Yeah, and we've seen bits of pieces of that elsewhere in the bracket. Catherine from Cruel Intentions springs to mind. There are a few other examples, but I don't think any of them kind of spell it out as blatantly as this film does with the conversation on the dock between Charlie and David. Mm-hmm. And I really like that even though they are, are rivals, they're not just rivals. They're allowed to have these moments of real connection like that. There's this interesting sense because when we start off the film, David calls Charlie a prick. Even Scranton a prick's a prick. As the film goes on, they come to understanding, they become friends, and then Charlie starts to feel jealous of David and finds out he's Jewish and then things take a turn. And then the last line that Charlie says to David is I'm still gonna get into Harvard. And in 10 years, nobody's gonna remember any of this. You'll still be a goddamn Jew. You'll still be a prick. Mm -hmm. It's a lovely bookend to the beginning and end of their relationship. And that line also, is a good part of why the movie kind of feels spheric. It's like there is a win here. Maybe a few people grew, but there's still a lot of problems. And Charlie still has all this privilege that will allow him to bounce back from this. Yeah, Charlie's not really going to face any consequences. He even says, I'm still getting into Harvard. Right, which both very much sucks, but is also very real. But also the film does a good job of not making that take away from the bit of the punch in the air moment of David saying, You're never going to forget it happened because I'm going to stay here. And every day you see me, you'll remember that it happened. You used me for football. I'll use you to get into Harvard. Heck yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of really clever writing. Like, there's a repeated line from the other boys in the school that David lied, and him pointing out that he didn't lie. He Exactly. I think that's a very nuanced thing to explore about truth and lies and being true to yourself and all that jazz that I think is a very real thing of people assuming that because you were hiding your identity out of fear, you were lying, which is not how that works, but I get it. There's a really great exchange between Sally, David's girlfriend, before he became publicly Jewish because he's been trying to talk with her since and she hasn't been returning his calls. So he goes, finds her at swim practice and confronts her. It's like, what's going on? They have a conversation. You lied to me. I didn't lie to you. I lied to my father. I lied to myself. And it is a very powerful moment in a very difficult conversation. Mm -hmm. And the film doesn't really make a specific concrete stance about whether or not hiding a part of her identity counts as lying, and if so, to whom it lets characters express different thoughts and lets the audience make some of their own decisions without putting a lot of moral weight on it, which I think is a really smart choice. I think there is complicated nuance there. Nuance that isn't even strictly about the, the ethics, and just about the minutia of what it means to be truthful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's really interesting, and I like it. A lot of this story hinges on solid performances from young actors. God's right. 
And we have a fantastic cast here. So we've already talked about uh, David being played by Brendan Fraser. Charlie is played by Matt Damon. We also have Ben Affleck here. Has Chesty. <laughs> yes. Uh, he's honestly kind of a minor character, but this was a point in time where Matt Damon and Ben Affleck were inseparable. You had to cast both of them. Right. We also have David's roommate, Chris Reese, played by Chris O'Donnell. Not as well known of an actor as the others. He was on a NCIS spinoff. He also played Robin in Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, <laughs> the Joel Schumacher ones. So between Ben Affleck and him, we have a full Batman and Robin team in this movie. <laughs> Which, fun fact, are now part of the same multiverse. Oh, crisis. <laughs> we also have Anthony Rapp as Magoo. Mm -hmm. that's, that's his name. He's Magoo. That's who he's credited as, yes. And I can't remember the name of the actor who plays um, McGiven. McGivern. Mac. McGivern. Mac. Uh, Andrew Laurie. Yeah. Who, I remember looking him up and he didn't seem like he'd done much afterwards. Mm -hmm. He has a very, like, interesting face. Yeah. He, unfortunately, exits the film about halfway through, but the performance he gives before then is fantastic. So... McGivern is kind of the class clown to the friend group. Um, he has a hi-fi. It's got some... We see it towards the beginning of the film, they're all like together singing doo-wop together. And then the teacher in charge of their house you know, tells them to turn, <laughs> turn that awful music down because it's by black people. Gentlemen, we all have to live here. But we're not going to bring the jungle into my house. We'll get to the teacher later. We're still coming for you. Yeah. Mac also cosplays as the Shadow. <laughs> Some of you may remember that from uh, our uh, What If issues of our comics bracket, which is is just great. Like, he's a fantastic character, um, but we later find out that teacher is the teacher for French 4, which a lot of them are in because you have to take a foreign language to, you know, get into the Ivy Leagues. And... He is a hard ass, and he narrows in on McGivern, who is struggling in that course, and specifically has a lot of anxiety about public speaking. He rides him, fails him during an oral examination that leads to him having a complete breakdown. And that seems really interesting, because, I mean, it isn't strictly necessary for the plot. It isn't... Like, Brendan Fraser is there, and it leads to some bonding between the characters, but we don't strictly need it for the overall rise and fall of Brendan Fraser as an explosion of, of identity, but it does reinforce the theme and the stakes of what it is like to be like a generational prep student uh, in these schools and the pressure therein, that, which helps us understand and believe more thoroughly the 12 Angry Men sequence about what it might cost them to be honest and to kick out Charlie and all that jazz. So I think it works really well for helping us understand this world. Yeah. Uh, also, that whole sequence is what eventually leads to the really deep conversation between Charlie and David, um, because Charlie's like, you can't call out a teacher the way you did. Like, you're not going to make it if you keep doing that. Mm -hmm. Charlie is very much in this space of not wanting to rock the boat, not wanting to make changes, and just accept what comes your way. Like, he has a bit where he talks about how... Uh, None of us ever goes off and lives by his wit. We do the things they tell us to do, and then they give us the good life. Which, like, is fascinating. What a good encapsulation of a lot of the way that people in positions of privilege will just let atrocities happen because it intangibly benefits them to not 
risk losing that. Mm-hmm. Also, with the whole McGivern and Mr. Cleary situation, the, the French teacher, they do eventually get back at him. They they pull a classic prank and disassemble and then reassemble his car inside of his room. Oldie but goodie, never gets old. It really doesn't. So, while a lot of this movie works, um, there's a fight towards the start that has some questionable choices. Is that fight towards the start? Yeah. Or is that the one where um, we have some, like, stock sound effects? No, the stock sound effects are when they're, like, wrestling naked. Oh, no, that's during the high-tension naked fight? (laughs) Yes, which is why it's so bad. Oh, God, okay. So, let me set this up. I mentioned that Charlie outs David. He does so while they're all naked in the shower after a game. So... Everyone's in this incredibly vulnerable position, and then the fight starts, and the camera can't show any wide shots, as it were. Um, <laughs> we sadly don't get a long take. You do see butts beforehand, though. Yeah, butts everywhere. Butts for days. And the tension of that scene is undercut by having the most stock sound effects. Like, it's like they googled punch sound effect and clicked the first link, as it were, in 1992. I'd really like you to just search punch sound effect and put it exactly the first thing that comes up. That is exactly what I did. (laughs) The fight is good, and I like the idea that the characters are being naked and open and vulnerable, where previously they've been concealed both socially and also with their clothes. I think symbolically it works just fine, but the audio mixing, come on, just like, try a little harder. Yeah, like... Just have someone punch a chicken or something. Uh, Like, sorry, Uh, a non-living chicken. Don't punch a live chicken. But go buy a turkey. Yeah, like, pay your Foley people more. I also like that Matt Damon fucking loses that fight. Like, he, he starts a fight that he proceeds to get his ass handed to him. Because Brendan Fraser has the blood of giants or whatever. He also has a lot of experience fighting. That's true. His first fight in the movie, we surmise very easily, is not his first fight. I get what you're saying about that scene, but part of them being naked during it does feel exploitative. There are definitely a few scenes in this film that bring to mind toy soldiers. Mm, sure, yeah. Where they're just young teenage heartthrobs uh, walking around shirtless and par- partially nude for reasons. That's fair. Yeah, I <laughs> I can't argue with that. Also, I'm not opposed to getting butts into the seats with, uh, I, I, guess, I guess, butts, uh, and then having them like unpack the complicated nature of anti-Semitism. <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and how microaggressions play into that. I've definitely seen worse examples. It's kind of like that scene from, oh, fuck, what's it called? The Big Short? The one about, like, the housing crisis, where uh, What's Her Bucket is just sitting in a bath talking about subprime mortgages. Subprime loans, tranches. It's pretty confusing, right? So here's Margot Robbie in a bubble bath to explain. Basically, Louis Rainieri's mortgage funds were amazingly profitable for the big banks. They made uh, Well, now I need to watch The Big Short because that sounds hilarious. <laughs> I think the, the same thing is also true later when David goes to talk to Sally and she's at a swim meet. So she's in a one piece, she's wet, and there's a certain like vulnerability to her, whereas David is in like layers upon layers. And it's this incredible sense of like him being out of place. Like you don't wear layers upon layers in a trench coat to a girl's swim meet. It works visually to make him feel even more like an outsider than he presumably already feels, but also makes Sally look very kind of... Vulnerable, caught off guard. Vulnerable, caught off guard. Also very small and weary because she doesn't have makeup on. She's not like poised in like a nice dress. Mm -hmm. She's out of her element. Exactly. I think they're going for a thing. I'm not sure if they went for it thoroughly enough to make it clear. 
Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is we needed more people to be naked and having conversations about uh, anti-Semitism. Yeah, I think the anti-Semitism comes to a head when David finds a, a swastika in his room. So he, like, throws it at the guys who are playing hockey in the hallway. Then a few minutes later, comes and just posts a uh, piece of paper to to the wall next to the bulletin board, not on it. Mm-hmm. Which, I love that small little flourish. Which said, whoever put it aside, meet me outside at 10 p.m. tonight. Right. And it's pouring, and he's just waiting out there for someone to come down, and all of the guys are looking out from their windows with the lights on, and he just sees all of them. He just shouts, Cowards! One reviewer I found, uh, Sean Keeley, wrote about how the lack of satisfaction of that scene, like no one comes forward to say I did it, he doesn't get to have the satisfaction of fighting them. All he gets is to call them cowards somewhat impotently. Might be the only satisfaction he or I can ever have. Which, yeah, that's fair. Sometimes you don't get to confront your, your oppressors. Sometimes you don't get to have that closure. And we never find out who made that sign. No, um, we, we never do. Whether it was a group thing or whether everybody was part of it. Whether it was somebody who later voted for or against him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my money's on Magoo. Yeah, that, that that seems right. But I do like that we never find out. It plays into the idea of this anti-Semitic world that is kind of omnipresent as opposed to just a few bad actors. Mm-hmm. I, which I think is a way more real thing than movies where you just have like the one racist and once you get rid of the racist, then it fixed. Yeah. It also feels realistic with how clandestine these people tend to be. Very few people show their face when they're putting up... Uh, Nazi propaganda flyers. Right. Another really good bit, David has a line at one point where he talks about, where someone's kind of, it's not that bad in him about the persecution. He mentions, you know, like the the sign and how something about this has happened before and doesn't really elaborate on it, whether he means it's happened to him personally in his life or whether this conceptually has happened to Jewish people before. And I love how ambiguous that line is. Well... Or did I misread that? Uh, No, like I definitely think that line is ambiguous, but I also think it plays into Jewish theology. At least what I've heard secondhand from Jewish people is like there is that sense of you wrong one of us, you have wronged us all as a community. Mm, Sure, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Unfortunately, Brendan Fraser doesn't have a community here. He's so alone, and I feel so bad for him. Mm-hmm. I do appreciate that most of the teachers aren't against him. Like, they, once things come to light, they do show some respect for him. Talk about how uh, the honor code is a living thing. It cannot exist in a vacuum. I, I like that. I think that he deserves better, but there's, I'm glad the teachers aren't Saturday morning cartoon villains. Like, they could have been in a less good film. The only crappy adults that we see are, like, the administrators, and like none of them are actively persecuting David for being Jewish. They're just holding up systemic oppressions, and the school that St. Matt's wanted to beat in football specifically mentions... They wouldn't have enrolled a Jew, not even for a championship. When David's first getting there, the coach essentially tells him, hey, keep that a secret for your own good, which isn't like a good thing to tell someone. It's not like a healthy attitude, but it is a more honest and nuanced thing for the character to say that is more believable to me than him being blatantly bigoted or warmly supportive. Yeah, I honestly wish we got a little bit more of the coach because we really get him picking up David and that talk before he enters the dorm. And then during the big game where... Uh, he is chastising David for not running the plays that he's calling. I don't know to what extent the running the plays thing feeds into anything in the narrative beyond David's character. 
Well, it, I, I also don't understand football. <laughs> well, so the plays that David is running, they're trying. He's trying to highlight Charlie so that he can show off in front of his dad and his brother, who just won a award for like uh, being a previously highly decorated quarterback at the school. Mm, okay, sure. So like Charlie's trying to show off in front of his family for the big game and. David gives him a chance, he screws it up, and the other team's able to score, Mm. and when Charlie asks David for another chance, he kind of halfway does it, and he has Charlie block for him, Mm. so he can run enough touchdown. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. I didn't quite get all of that stuff, because I think there was like a scene where they tell you what numbers go with which people, and I blinked during it, so... (laughs) But thank you. I understand this film better now. Uh, yeah. One small thing I love. There's a school dance, which is the first time that David meets Sally, mm-hmm. and they dance together to Earth Angel. Right, because this is the same dance from uh, Back to the Future before the time travel happens. <laughs> which is why Johnny B. Good isn't playing. That's the only reason. I do like Sally. I, I'm glad that she's a nuanced character. I'm glad that she is also not all good or, or all bad. Mm-hmm. I like she's kind of pitiful, honestly. Mm-hmm. I think that feels very real. And I do like how Charlie treats her as if she's just sort of a done deal, as it were. A foregone conclusion. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of things that Charlie just assumes he's going to get by, you know... Birthright? Yeah, by birthright, basically. <laughs> and he, he's shown repeatedly as not being willing to work for them, which... Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I, I really love the dynamic between Sally and Charlie and how much it informs Charlie's character. Mm-hmm. Charlie's also very pathetic, but in a very different way. He's pathetic, but with, but still with institutional power, which is a bad combination. He's a weasel. Yeah, he's a weasel king. We didn't really talk about either of the cinematography for these movies. They're both fine. Um, um, I think School Ties has more nice shots, but... Yeah, I do think both of them have some really good editing. Like, there are some Mm -hmm. really uh, well-utilized cuts, whether for dramatic purposes or for comedy. Mm -hmm. Nothing I saw was super standout in that regard. Which I think is probably for the best. Like, these school ties feels more like a prestige made-for-TV movie Mm -hmm. that got film-level actors before they were film-level actors. Mm -hmm. Which, I'm not saying that's to diminish it or its impact or anything, but it doesn't... It doesn't try to be flashy. It doesn't try to like go over the top of a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think it's not doing that because it wants you to focus more on the narrative and the story that it's telling. And I think that's really where the film shines. Right, for sure. Um, it's it's very clearly a work of passion. And it actually was like the, the producer was trying to get this story made for almost a decade before he eventually got promoted. And then was like, hey, as a big wig with, I think, Paramount or whatever, as a big wig with Paramount, we're making my movie now. Which I respect. And then he got Dick Wolf to write it. Yeah, when I saw Dick Wolf on here, I was not expecting a lot, but surprisingly works. This is probably back when Dick Wolf had, had talent and why he has so many goddamn <laughs> Law & Order TV shows. <laughs> right. And I mean, it's not that Law & Order is devoid of talent. It's just that there's so much of it. You can only squeeze a stone of so much blood. Yep. All right. I think it's time to get into our end segment. Yeah, so these are our alignment charts. So who is most goth, most nerd, most prep, and most jock of this? Most jock, I've got to go with David. Oh, yeah, definitely. Nerd, I kind of want to go with Jonathan. Yeah, I would either go Jonathan or Magoo, but fuck Magoo. Yeah, I don't want him to win anything. 
I honestly think Magoo is a little bit cartoonishly. Yeah, like Magoo doesn't have some of the subtlety that the other characters do. And I mean, I'm not saying that, that people like that don't exist, but I'm saying that I think that this movie was exploring things in a more complicated way than uh, Magoo was. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess. Well, I guess, do we want to sorry. give it to Squire Franklin Burroughs the Fourth, or do we want to give it to Charlie Dillon? I think Charlie Dillon is more prep, even though Squire Franklin Burroughs the Fourth of Chelmsford or whatever <laughs> has more of the traits, but he doesn't act like a prep. Mm-hmm. He acts like. I don't know what he's like. <laughs> Rob Lowe is truly a wonder in this movie. Yeah. yeah, but I'm fine with giving it to Charlie. Yeah. Charlie has the most privilege. Yeah. Um, very clearly so. And he kind of very clearly articulates the most what it's like to have that kind of privilege. Mm-hmm. Goth is a tough one. I have two recommendations for this one. Okay, sure. From School Ties, I would nominate McGivern. Yeah, sure. From Class, I would nominate Skip. Interesting. Make your case for Skip. Skip feels like most of the time he is covering for his depression and shitty home life with humor, as lots of people do. But when he opens up on the boat and after things go down between Jonathan and his mom, I think that's when he most typifies goth. That's fair. And I think we get more of that from him than we do uh, McGivern. I think McGivern is doing a lot of the same kind of things, but because he's less of a central character, we don't quite get to explore that as much. Which means that all four main characters of these movies are uh, on this, which is unusual. I feel like Jonathan and Skip are still not very strong examples of their alignment. They're in there, but we don't really have anybody who's super duper goth. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's not in style. But yeah, I think it's pretty clear that School Ties is probably going to move on here. Yeah, and honestly, up until the final bit of Class, I thought it was going to be pretty close. They're both good movies. Class has some flaws that I think could have been fixed had it not had the production troubles that it did. But School Ties sticks to landing so triumphantly, whereas Class just kind of peters out. Yeah, both of these films have strong stars, and I think we were for both of them, we were worried about how they were going to finish, and School Ties just did exactly what it needed to do. This and, like, Mona Lisa Smile, like, baffle me how they are not well-remembered, because they're both very good. We talked before about how they're both dealing with social issues in a very head-on way, and it might be that people are rating low out of uh, discomfort with that. Yes. Yeah. I don't know how much of it is just that... Uh, all these actors have been in things later that were more well-remembered, but honestly, you think you at least have some prestige for being uh, that movie with Ben Affleck and Matt, uh, Matt Damon and uh, Brendan Fraser, all in the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, honestly, when I when I saw the cast for this, as I was constructing the back, I'm like, okay, yeah, this has to go on here. Right? Quick sidebar, I have this concept of in the early 2000s, a movie with Ben Affleck and Matt Damon as Bats and Soups, and then Brendan Fraser as uh, Hal Jordan. Brendan Fraser would have made an excellent Hal Jordan. Right? But nowadays he make a better um, uh, Uncle Ben. Find out if Brendan Fraser becomes Uncle Ben next time. Uh, <laughs> wait, no. Um, no, it's going to be like four episodes. <laughs> and even then, he still probably will not become Uncle Ben, but... Who knows? Next week, we're going to have Dead Poet Society versus She's the Man. That'll be fun. That'll be a bit of a breath of fresh air, honestly. <laughs> These last two episodes have had some serious subject matter. Yes. Not that Dead Poet Society doesn't, but Rob Williams is here to hold her hand through it. Mm-hmm. And as we know, Maya Franklin water bucket challenged Mike Knoll to be on that one, so he's probably going to be there. But to hear all of that, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and wherever you catch your pods. Once again, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.